1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 27 today. I'm very thankful for all the reminders to bring my toolbox. All you have to do is forget something once and you'll never forget it again. And uh, with all your help, we won't forget it anymore, will we? And we get to open it today. Find out what's inside. We discuss God's toolbox. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27 says, just the first part, For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Heavenly Father, with your word in our hand, we come to this time in our service when we sit at your feet, ask that you might teach us. We want to be different. Your word works in our heart. Your spirit changes us from the inside out. We have a need of that today, and I pray that you might challenge us thoroughly, make us different people because we spend this time with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go back to Corinth, A.D. 56. A major Greek city. Everything about it is Greek. It is in Greece. And yet, that city sits in the midst of the Roman Empire. Two great influences on the people who live in that city. Within that city is a church, the Corinth Bible Church. You didn't know its name, did you? The Corinth Bible Church, sitting inside of that city. It's about five years old, the church is, and very heavily influenced by the Greek and Roman culture that they live in. Very heavily influenced. The Corinthians were in the middle of this Roman concept that elevated man. And boy, did they elevate man. Even to the point that the emperor was considered God to them. That was their way of of elevating man. On the other side, the the Greek culture that that, uh, was their history. That was their heartbeat, Greek. And... uh, They were immersed in what we now look back on in in studies as Greek mythology. We study about all their various gods, and, and that was their life, to have particular gods, and and the Corinthians had one too. Aphrodite's temple, among others, was right there in that town. Aphrodite, the, the Romans had another name for her. They called her Venus. Kind of give you an idea what their temple worship was all about. But they were well immersed in the, in the concept of many, many, many gods. But these gods, if you remember the days you studied it in school, uh, they had what we called, and appropriately here, their Achilles heel. These gods had problems. They, they, had this, they could limit it, they could do so much, they couldn't do all these things and such. And in, in reality, their religion brought God down to the level of man. So there's two cultures around them. One elevating man to the level of God, and one bringing gods down to the level of man. They're living in the midst of that. No wonder why they're so man-centered. 
in all their thinking and all their practices. Uh, we can we can cite that as a, a real issue in the Corinthian church. Uh, they were immature and man-centered. That's where their focus was, was on man. And, and the elevation of man and the bringing of, of deity down to their own level. So, within a church, you can understand this as we study them, and we only get a glimpse, but if we took the whole church and its character from this book and Second Corinthians as well, we would see that this church lived like mere men. They served like mere men. They thought like mere men. They used man's wisdom and man's power for man's glory, and is it any wonder they had man's problems? They were so saturated with man in this church. Anytime you set man as a center of a church, the church can't function as it is designed. It is a spiritual thing. It's a something that's supposed to be led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, taught by the Word of God. And if you put man in that mix, it's just not going to have the same results. So they had sinful practices, and they had bad teaching. And that was true of the Corinthian church. Now, these same influences still are alive and well in our day and age. They operate along us, along us our way too. Don't, you don't have to think very hard on this, but do we not at times elevate men up to a level of hero and flock around them? Because of their abilities, because of their, their expertise in one way or another? We tend to make heroes out of men, don't we? On the other hand, there's groups like the open theist who practice their type of theology that God doesn't know the future and he can't do much about what is going to happen. He's just like you and I are and we see in scripture he changes his mind so apparently he doesn't realize the outcome. And so they've got a God who's come down to man level. And a lot of the present day culture in church is doing that anyway. Bringing God down to a level of man. We See, we can, we can work with a God better that way, can't we? He's more on our level. Well, years and years ago, uh, at Moody Bible Institute during Founders Week, Chuck Swindoll would come about every two or three years, but he was there and he was teaching a principle that was so simplistic. It's in my mind, in my heart, you just can't get this out. And you understand how easy this is. When you approach God's Word and you see all that is done in this book, remember that God is God, no less. And man is man, no more. And that's a great way to start, isn't it? God is God, and man is man. But the Corinthians wanted to give their opinion of what God can use. They wanted to influence what's in his toolbox. And that's one of the major issues of chapter 1, 2, and 3 in this book. Their wisdom... Their wisdom was suggesting these tools, God, are worthy of your use. These tools are, are, are the ones you should use. And these tools over here, they're not worthy of your use at all. They had that stretched all the way into chapter 12 and 14. They were still arguing the point as to which, God, which tools God used. So we want to be sure as we begin our study of tools that we are careful not to elevate tools to a value greater than they ought to be. 
They're just tools. But at the same time, we don't want to depress the value of these tools to what to less than what they ought to be. They are tools. Alright? We want to keep that. Tools are tools. Let's add that to our list. Man is man. God is God. Tools are tools. No more, no less. He says in verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. These three the Corinthians elevated particularly. They said, God, these are the best tools in the box. The wise man, the powerful man, the noble man. Uh, let's elevate those three because, boy, they get a lot of things done. These guys are the leaders. These are the key individuals. And so they elevated these three. Now, I'm not going to deal with all three today. Just the one, because one will certainly speak to our, our tool we're talking about here today. Let's talk about the wise men. The wise men. The word in the Greek is sophos. We get philosophy and all these other words out of that family of words. Uh, sophos, S-O-P-H-O-S. They're the wise ones. Now, I know our tendency, we read of that term, wise one, and we want to step right back, don't we? We say, I don't want to deal with these guys. They sound like they're dangerous. Uh, actually, there are two different kinds of, of wise people. This one, the sophists, had a particular wisdom about them. It was what we might call practical. It was an expertise or a skill from applied knowledge. Now, what's that really mean? It, it sounds very complicated, doesn't it? Well, put it this way. There's a difference between a group who knows what to do and a group who does what needs to be done. You know the difference, don't you? There's one group that knows what to do, but guess what they do? Nothing. They just sit around and talk about it. This one knows what to do, and they do it. Which one would you rather have working on your side? Usually this one. Sophists. Believe it or not, these are the guys who aren't just sitting around thinking wise thoughts, but they know how to apply their knowledge and skill and expertise. And you say, okay, so what's the problem with this group? Well, it's understandable that those who are experts and able to do it, what they know need to be done, are admired greatly, aren't they? We look up to these guys. We look at them because, well, you know, they know what to do and they get it done. But there's a great danger in promoting that tool. And you know what it is. We start to, to give the glory to the tool rather than to the one who uses it. Or sometimes we give the glory to the tool and not consider the work that is accomplished. The work is overshadowed by the tool. The owner is overshadowed by the tool because the tool is such a piece of expertise. That's a tendency and a danger that comes with them. Wise men are elevated. They lose sight of who is working and they lose sight of the work itself. Notice in verse number 26, in God's calling, not many are wise according to the flesh. Now, I want you to notice something. It does not say that God has not chosen any wise men. It says he chose, did not chose, choose many 
wise man, right? He can work with a wise man. He can do that. If God made you a wise tool, be careful that you did not become elevated beyond that of a tool and turn to boasting. He doesn't say he doesn't call wise men. But they're not found very often. I kind of wondered, what kind of tool would that look like in in a box, the wise men? Maybe that's uh, the real precision tools, the the ones, you know, only the experts can use. We can't buy those. Only they can buy those for some reason. Those those specialty tools and things. And the only thing that I even come close to might be a, a very generic form of a Swiss Army knife. And that's, that's still not much. But some people, you know, that's, that's what you need. It can do everything. Right? Well, God can use a tool like that. God does use a tool like that. But it's not as often. Once he used a whale. He doesn't go around using whales all the time, does he? Once he made a donkey speak. Now, how many of those have you heard lately? God can use unique tools, and and wise men are in that department. I just want to make this point. So, when Paul's going to speak to you, and me, from this passage, as he talked to them, he says, consider your calling. These are not the ones that the Lord typically pulls out of the box. And there was a reason for that. There were not many of them. We're looking at the many, probably because that's probably where we fit in, right? We want to see what it is. And actually he says this in verse number 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Now that's a key word as we we just start to turn the page in our thinking here. The word but. It's contrary to what he just said. It's meant to be. It's contrary to what he just said. The fact that God chooses here is contrary to the suggestions of the Corinthians. It's contrary to the suggestions of the world. The world would flock to the one tool, and God says, no, no. I'm going to show a contrast here on purpose. I'm going to show you a contrast in what I choose. Now, before I tell you what God chooses, I want to tell you why God chooses it. End of verse number 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Now, we see that verse, but go back to that first phrase. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He had a reason for it. He said, well, this is an interesting phrase, to shame the wise? Shame the wise? Well, the, the Greek word for shaming is just what you think. It's to shame them, and it's got a preposition down. To shame down. To shame down. To disgrace. Interesting choice of words, huh? To disgrace. To, make, to put them to a blush. To, to confound them. To dishonor them. The word is shame. And because it starts with a preposition in the Greek, it tends to intensify the action. And that means he intensely disgraces them, or intensely presses them down. Interesting choice of words here. Now you may think, well that doesn't sound too nice. But pride doesn't sound too nice either, does it? What do you think he's probably dealing with in the issue of the wise? The issue of pride. 
how they can go up. And he's, I mean, let's talk about Job just for a minute. You know Job. He's got that great long book in the Bible that you might have read chapter 1 and 2 and skipped to chapter 40. Right? Because there's a lot of conversation in the middle and you said, I have no idea what they're talking about. Let me summarize it real simple. Job had a very bad day. All right? His herds were all gone. Everything he owned as far as uh, animals were concerned were taken away. His servants were all lost. They were gone that same day. His children were all killed that day. Wasn't very long after that, his health was gone too. And there you've got Job sitting on the ash pile, scraping the boils with a piece of broken pottery. Of course, his wife came to encourage him and said, why don't you just die? That really helped your day. So here's Job with all these things. And then his friends come and they, they, they want to talk wisdom with him. They spend the book arguing wisdom with them. You know, the best way they thought to help Job was to humble him. You must have done something wrong, Job. We want, we want to help you get the right perspective. And so they spent the whole time telling him what he was doing wrong. And yet, Job knew he was doing things right. So he kept answering each one. But you could sense, as you read through the book, if you watch Job's words, he starts to get a little bit puffy. And that's not because his sores were swelling. That's because in his heart, you can see this, this man, though he sees his approach and his understanding as right, his rightness was starting to elevate him in the sight of God and in the sight of these friends. So God steps into the, uh, the discussion here, and he says, Job, let me test your wisdom. And you start to see that at the end of the book. And he launches into a series of questions that uh, Job cannot answer. Each one is really designed to show how little a man has up here when it comes to intellect and what he can truly know. The fact is, Job, here's my conclusion and my slight paraphrase on it, you're not ready to run the universe. You're not ready for it. God brought him to shame. Job knew it. Job responded two ways. His first response was, I am insignificant. I cover my mouth with my hand. He knew he better stop talking. <laughs> that was his first thing he did. The second response he says is, Lord, I take back all of my words and I repent in dust and ashes. Those are the two things that Job knew he had to do. See, there is, there is a wise man out there. And he's a wise man who knows who works the tools, and a wise man knows what works the tools do. But it's a tendency for the wise man to start thinking that I'm the tool, and everything revolves around me. So many times God starts fishing around in the toolbox. He's not looking for the wise man, you see. He's not looking for the wise man. What he tends to do is pull out that which causes the wise man to feel shame. That's the why. But we're wanting to know as well, what kind of tool does God choose from the toolbox? Well, he reaches over and he picks them out. He says, these ones would do. He grabs a couple of tools and, and says, these are the ones I want. I'm going to use these. He purposely chooses. 
God himself chooses for himself. That's the Greek word set, setting that comes here. The foolish things of the world. Foolish. Don't you love that word? As long as it's not aimed at you, right? Foolish. You, this is the word moros. You want to know what word we get from it? You probably can guess. It is the word moron comes from. In my thesaurus, it also has the word blockhead next to it. Your translation probably doesn't. God chooses the blockheads of the world. Hmm. These are, matter of fact, let me give you the whole definition. You ready? This is incredible. Not only just foolish, but absurd. Absurd. Heedless. Blockheads. Dull. Stupid. Morons. Whoa, what a list. This doesn't sound very complimentary now, does it? Chooses the dull. Let's just pull out the dull for a minute. The dull. What is, what's the dull? Here's their style. The dull are boring. Aren't they? The dull are, are uninteresting. They're tedious. They're monotonous. They're unexciting. You know what our world will flock to when it comes to speakers? The dull, right? No. No, there's, I can't go hear that guy. It just drives me crazy. He's a monotone. I, I, I just can't hear because it's so uninteresting. His style. His style. We elevate a tool by style. You know our world does. I've told you this before, but some of you haven't heard all of my stories. There's only about 12. And uh, um, when I was at Moody Bible Institute, I had a Romans class. And the teacher was dull. All these words fit him just as, as easy as that can be. Boring, uninteresting, tedious, monotonous, and unexciting. And yet that class changed my life. Because it was God's word and not the tool. It was God's work that was at work in my heart. And I so thank the Lord for that. But I remember every time I think of that style of dull, I think of him. And yet the Lord used that tool to change my heart. Another time when we think of dull, we think of appearance. And boy, is that lackluster. That's just not, not very uh, um, bright and shiny, is it? It's faded and it's dim. Does the world like shiny things? Mm-hmm. As to intellect, we think of dull as being thick and unintelligent and slow and plodding and sluggish. The world's not attracted to that. As to the effects that the, that the, this word brings about, they dampen things, they, they leave this bluntness about them. It's a blur in the end, it's a muffle. Those are the words all related to the idea of dull. God chooses those tools. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? God chooses those tools so that we understand that the tool didn't perform the work. God did. God does. Using such tools, the ones have no effect, the ones that have no, no style to them, the ones that just, you know, they leave behind a, a, a dullness. I bring two tools in front of me this morning. Here's our start. Two tools. I want, I want to use these as uh, illustrations of the foolish things that God uses. This tool has always been one of my favorite. A good hearty screwdriver. You've got to have one somewhere, right? 
They can do so many things. You can punch holes with this. You beat it with a hammer. You could probably tell. Uh, the end has been scraped up a lot. Pry things up with it. But when you need a good sturdy screwdriver to get into that slot and turn that hard to turn screw, you want something big and powerful. And I've always loved this screwdriver. Used it for so many things until I broke the tip off of it. I don't remember exactly what I was trying to pry with it or what it was that day, but sure enough, there it went, snap right off. And I said, oh, there goes my tool. It's broken now. What do you do with a broken flat screwdriver? In this case, I, I, was, I was pretty disappointed. So I did what everyone else would do. Or I thought. <laughs> I'll fix it. All right? So I got my grinder, walked over to it with it, and I started grinding away to make a nice point on that again, and now it's crooked and broken. <laughs> I've got two problems now because I tried to fix this thing. I keep it in my box. Never know when I might need a crooked, broken screwdriver to fix a crooked, broken screw, right? But I, I look at this thing and I say, okay, I tried to fix it because I wanted it to be suitable as a screwdriver. And how do we tend to do that so often? We, we say a broken tool. Broken people should be fixed before they're usable, right? That's what we say. Let's go fix them so God can use them. How many times did God say, no, I wanted them broken so I could use them? But Lord, that's not the way we do it down here. We fix things first so that they're useful. This is, this is a good reminder for me. The Lord reaches into that wonderful toolbox of His and He pulls out something that looks so foolish. <laughs> he says, I could use this. This is what I want. He doesn't reach in all the time and, and pull out the wisest that we would say. But his wisdom is not yours, is it? It's not mine. It's not the way I think. The way he chooses, he's looking at the project, he's looking at the end result, he's designed a tool the way it is. Now this might come across as difficult for many of us, because when we see it broken, we say it's no longer designed correctly. That could exactly be what the Lord had in mind when he had it broken. How many more things might we accomplish if we start to appreciate how he's made us, how he has designed us, rather than say, I've got to fix it so I can be useful again? Just a simple thought. But the world says, throw it away. It's foolish to keep it. God chooses it. Never, never underestimate what God can do with a broken tool. Never underestimate what God can do with a broken tool. So I, I like this one. It's a reminder what God can do. Then I've got this other one here. If you grow up in a world of the Phillips heads and the slotted head screws, you'll be amazed to find someday that there are screws with neither slots nor Phillips heads on them. I don't know how old I was. It was a, quite a ways down the road because I owned a car at the time. And I went to fix a part on that car, and I looked at that screw, and I said, now wait a minute, that is not right. It wasn't a Phillips head, and it wasn't a slotted head, and I had no idea what that star shape was. 
And I'd never seen one before. Honestly, I'd never seen a star-shaped screw head before. And I said, exactly how do you do that? So you get a small flat one and try to stuff it in there and turn it. And you know what? That doesn't work. You try a Phillips head. It doesn't work either. So you're saying, now what do I do? You ask your dad. Go over to my dad's house. I said, look at this screw. How am I supposed to get that out? He handed me this. It's a star-headed screwdriver. Is that amazing? I'd never seen one before in my life. A screwdriver that's shaped like a star to fit inside of screws that have what? A star head. I said, I don't know if even that's the right terms. But I said, this worked. I keep it in my, my toolbox because it worked for that tool. That one job, I could do it. I, I don't think I've used it since. But it worked that day. Now, what's, what's funny about this was, I toss it here in the, school, in the, in the toolbox, and uh, oh, a couple years later, I know uh, Kay was looking for a screwdriver one day, and she's pulling out these screws. It looked about the right size for what she wanted, and then she saw the end. She says, what is this? It was perfect. I just love that look. What is this? And that's exactly what we do with tools like this. Say, what is this? That's not a flat. That's not a Phillips. What do you do with that thing? You've never seen it before. It looks pretty odd, doesn't it? That's the way I first approached it. That's what she approached it as. What is this? This seems completely out of place in the world of flats and Phillips. It's very much out of place. And the world would say, what is it then? How many other people show up in a church and people look at them and say, what's that? What's that do? What's that do? And they start, that's not our Phillips kind of person. That's not our squatted kind of person. That's, a, that's that. What do you do with that? Human wisdom, see, they, they have this way of categorizing things according to what doesn't fit. Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. You know, and they have four pictures there, and you gotta, you got to separate the one that's weird. Don't we do that in churches too? So that one, that one is not the same. So we separate it because it's not the way... Now, that's the way our world thinks. Our world typically would not pick a shepherd to be a king, would they? And our, our world typically doesn't go around looking for prophets in the fig farms. Fig. Now, there were pig farmers too, but there were fig farmers that the Lord chose for prophets. And nor would our world sit around and say, hey, that Pharisee should write two-thirds of the New Testament. It's funny how God chooses isn't it? The world says, now that, that, that's just not smart. We need Phillips. We need flats. We bemoan sometimes. If this is what you are, say you're a slotted or a star-shaped end of screwdriver. You sit around thinking, boy, I wish I was a Phillips head. You ever sit around saying, well, I wish I, I was a flat screwdriver? Not like that other one that's broken and crooked, but a good one. You ever bemoan the fact of what God has designed you to be? And all the while, he's been looking for a star-shaped end to work with. That's what you are. He's designed you for a task. Isn't that what we've learned already? He's designed you the way you are. 
He's designed you just as, even if you say, but I'm broken. He knows that. Doesn't he? These things are good for us. Don't ever underestimate what God can do with a tool. If we be considered foolish in the world's eyes, don't think that God thinks the same way. Okay? God chooses the foolish things of the world. They confound the wise. But that's what God chooses. We've got other tools we're going to walk through as we do this study. I want to leave you with some considering again. As we saw at the beginning of verse number 6. He said, consider, 26, consider your calling. Consider your calling. What you are. What he has designed you to be. Is part of his plan. Consider your calling. Right? Consider that. Stop and look at the fact that you've been chosen. You've been put in the box. Broken up? Yeah. God works with broken tools. Strange shapes? Yeah. God works with strange shapes too. But God chose you. Didn't he? That's a very important principle in our whole study here. God chose you. I know people wrestle with things. I've wrestled with things over the years too. Boy, I wish that was different. I wish I'd do this. I wish I had this. You know, the I wishes were a pretty big list. Never got them for Christmas. You ever carry on that list of I wish? Let's start with a new list. God has chosen me. Item number one. Item number two. God has designed me the way he designed me. That's simple, isn't it? While you're at it, add one more thing to consider. And it's simply this. What he has chosen me for and what he's designed me as is to bring him glory. It's to bring him glory. I just want to be a useful tool. How about you? I want to be a ready tool. When he reaches into the box, if he's going to pull me out and I'm broken off and crooked like that, I want to be ready to be used. If I'm going to have a star shaped to me, I want to be used. But either way, I want to be used. Are you ready to be used? Don't underestimate what God can do with you. That's a very important principle in Scripture. We're going to bring that back to you next week. I'm going to give you seven days to think about that. Alright? Next week, I'll conclude the exact same way. And guess what? We have five tools. So guess what? How many weeks are you going to hear it? Five more times. As we work our way through here, we need to know who chose us, who designed us, and why we're here. Let's bring in glory. This week is before you. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with this week now? Now that you know what he's done. Heavenly Father, we need work in our hearts. You know us so well. You chose us for what we are. You you even have designed us for this purpose. Sometimes, Lord, in our own wisdom and in our own pride and in our own thinking, we redesign your tools for our glory. I pray, Lord, you help us to change our vision on these things. 
Help us to see things as you see things. Why you choose us. Why you design us. What's it all about, Lord? Remind us again, it's for your glory. Teach us to be useful tools, we pray. Work in our hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen.